This is the All Markets Summit podcast from Yahoo Finance. Ken, have a seat. It's so great to see you. Thanks so much for coming here this morning. It's great to be here. So uh, let's just jump right in. Merck has had a really great run for the past several years in terms of its stock price. And I'm wondering how much of that has to do with reaping the fruits of the R&D and innovation that the company has been doing during your tenure over the past several years. Well, it has everything to do with it. I always say that our stock price, first of all, is a lagging indicator. The leading indicator is how well we're doing in terms of innovation and how many lives are we affecting positively. So you have set up an office in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and you say that Merck is now much more of a technology company. I thought it was a pharma company. Yeah. Well, historically, we've always been a company that's about science and innovation. Given what's happening now in technology, the opportunities that we have around data analytics, coupled with the traditional work that we do in biology and chemistry and those physical sciences, has transformed our opportunity to bring forward medically important products. So one of the drugs that is probably at the forefront of your portfolio right now is Keytruda. And, you know, it's interesting to me because I'm old enough to remember sort of the golden age of pharma when there were all these blockbuster drugs and you could tick off their names. And it seemed like that was, you know, in the rearview mirror. But Keytruda really is a blockbuster, right? Can you talk about that? You know, yes, it's it's an incredible drug. It's a remarkable drug. It is a drug that causes, for for the audience, it causes the body's immune system to fight cancer cells. So in some ways, traditional chemotherapy and other therapies for cancer sort of tried to kill the cancer cells without killing the host. What we're doing here is causing the host's own immune system to fight the cancer. And it's been, I think, a very successful drug. It's the first broad-spectrum anti-cancer drug ever introduced into clinical practice. And so while it is one drug, it's working across many tumor types. So in effect, it's a pipeline in a product. And, and so all this science that you're bringing to bear is so important because you mentioned to me backstage that the business model, you know, it's not what it used to be in terms of a lot of forces coming from Washington. It's very competitive business. Talk to us about differentiating the company that way and then the business model a little bit, Ken. Well, as you just alluded to, there's a lot of pressures on our business model. Uh, There's pricing pressures in the U.S. There are pricing pressures around the world. The reality of the world is people struggle to pay for health care, and that's a real problem that we're going to have to address. There's much more competition than there used to be when the days of the blockbusters, when you brought a new drug out, you could be on the market for a longer period of time without competition. I think competition and its impact on price and consumer choice is a good thing. But all of that puts pressure on the business model, and it means that we have to find better ways to produce R&D outcomes, uh, that is to say more R&D productivity and efficiency throughout our business model. You mentioned Washington. Uh, healthcare uh, affordability is one of the biggest challenges that we have politically, and our industry is right in the crosshairs. I just saw a recent Gallup poll that said uh, that the pharmaceutical industry was the lowest ranked industry in terms of the public's um, respect. 
Uh, that's not a good thing for an industry that exists to save people's lives. Yeah, how do you fight that? I mean, that, that's really, I thought journalists were the worst, but you guys are right there with us, I guess. That's, that's tough. Well, we're below Congress, below bankers, <laughs> below tobacco. Uh, that's that's hard not to a good place to be. Right. Uh, you know, I think it's really a challenge. So right now, I think there are a number of issues that are, are in the common uh, discussion in our country. Pharmaceutical pricing, Every person running for president has a plan to reduce pharmaceutical pricing. Some of them are, I think, legitimate plans. Some of them, I think, will hurt innovation, which we don't want. Uh, I think there are issues in our country around, for example, opioids. And so I think the front page stories about the industry tend to be negative. I think what people don't understand is the other side of the story. We talk about cancer. So now with our drug, uh, Keytruda, used with the standard of care, if you're a newly diagnosed person with lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, which is 85% of lung cancers, we will reduce your risk of dying by 50%. That's a whole lot. 160,000 people every year are newly diagnosed with this form of lung cancer. So now 80,000 of those people have a chance to live a longer, better life. So getting back to some more Washington stuff a little bit, what about Medicare for all? Where do you come off on that? Well, I happen to think that uh, Medicare has an important role to play in healthcare. Uh, I also think, however, that the private sector has a very important role to play in healthcare. Uh, I think at the end of the day, the U.S. medical system has its challenges, but I think it's still the best medical system in the world, and I would not like to see us try to wholesale change the system by saying we're going to give Medicare for everybody and thereby take away people's choice. So the slogan that I hear some people say is Medicare for all, but better care for none. Hmm. So getting back to this reputational thing a little bit and drug pricing, because that is just this easy thing That's for politicians to latch on to. And it seems like you guys, perhaps, maybe the industry writ large, could do a better job of telling people some of the things that you do in terms of providing medicines to those in need around the world. Are you guys involved in that? Yes, I would say, you know, a couple of things that I would mention in that regard. So Merck has a long history of bringing forward medicines that make a difference to people around the world. And we have a philosophy that just because people can't pay doesn't mean their lives are not worth saving. So we're very proud that it's our Ebola vaccine that's being used now in the latest outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. If you go beyond that, um, you know, we have given away for free our genetically engineered hepatitis B vaccine in China. There was a time in China when one in 10 newborns was born with a hepatitis B virus, which means that over a significant period of time, you're going to have destruction of livers, liver cancer. Uh, so you've saved millions of lives. And then historically, we've given away our river blindness drug in, in Africa and South America, and we've saved millions of people's sight. So I think you know the reality of the world is that we have to deal with the affordability issue around drugs. But part of what our business model has always been about is the humanitarian mission of bringing medicines to people all over the world, including people who can't afford to pay for them. So how do you sort of incorporate that into an ROI? In other words, you're giving away millions of doses to help uh, cure or prevent river blindness. Where is that manifested in maybe not your balance sheet or income statement, but in terms of your corporate goals or KPIs, if you will? So that's the precise point. I think people come to work in places like Merck because they have a real sense of purpose. And so if you want to draw a direct line between the drugs we give away, the vaccines we give away, 
and ROI. That's not as easy to do, but I think it's pretty clear that at the end of the day, for a company like Merck, what allows us to compete over the long term, and we're 130 years old now, is the quality of the people in the company, particularly the scientists. And so when you have physician scientists joining a company like Merck, they want to believe that the company's core values are consonant or consistent with their values. And so it helps us recruit really talented people, particularly among the younger people that we covet so much. Now let's talk about the younger people because the theme of the event is generational opportunities. And so tell us about how you address um, the generational differences when it comes to various constituencies. Let's start with employees. I mean, young people jump around now and change jobs more often. How do you attract and retain them? Well, I think it comes down to sense of purpose. My sense of it is that uh, younger people, by the way, we, we talk about younger people as though we weren't younger at one point in time. I, I can tell you that when I was young, and I was young 50 years ago, uh, I actually cared about purpose then too. So right. I don't think that's a new thing. I always hear people say, you know, younger people want a sense of purpose. Uh, right. I, I'm glad they do. <laughs> and what I think we offer uh, in a company whose salient purpose is to alleviate human suffering on a grand scale, that's a pretty good purpose to show up for work every day on. And so for us, one of the most important things that we offer is that sense of purpose. The other thing that we offer is, you know, what we're doing, the cutting edge aspects of science and healthcare is an intrinsically interesting thing. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's the kind of thing that people want to devote their life to coming forward with medically important products. What about young people, Ken, in terms of being customers? Are they different now than previous generations? You know, actually, I'm not so sure they're that different from previous generations. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, when you're in the pharmaceutical business, a lot of our products are cancer products, they're cardiovascular products. Uh, the, the audience skew, I mean, the, the population skews to the older side for, for medicines. Right. But vaccines are all for younger people. We, most of our vaccines are used for children or they're used for adolescents and young adults. Our biggest vaccine is Gardasil. Uh, which is used for human papillomavirus, which is the cause of cervical cancer. And so that, the audience for that vaccine are young women. Uh, and you're giving that vaccine because we've been able to show that if women are vaccinated against human papillomavirus, then you have a significant reduction in precancerous lesions. And as a result, public health authorities are now saying this vaccine could eliminate, eliminate cervical cancer around the world. But sometimes young women don't want to get vaccines, just like all people don't want to get vaccines, and that's an increasing problem, actually. Yeah, yeah. So on the younger side of it, you know, I have to say when I was younger, I thought I was invincible. Uh, I wasn't worried about health care when I was younger. I never saw a doctor until I was much older. Uh, so I understand that proposition. Uh, I think that the, the broader issue around vaccination is that we have to counter some misinformation that's broadly available in our society about vaccines in terms of the harm that people allege that they cause. Uh, we've had measles outbreaks. If you go back just 20 years, people had considered measles now obsolete in our society. Uh, and now it's coming back because people are hesitant to take vaccines. Does technology have something to do with that, Ken? And it, we, we seem to be so much more enlightened but it's counterintuitive that, say, the anti-vaxxer um, movement is gaining momentum. I think technology has a role. Technology, 
obviously we've, we've created a situation where there's more democratization of information, more information is available, but it tends not always to be curated. So there's a lot of false and incorrect information on the web. That's all there is to it. And if you want to spread that kind of information and cause people to be fearful, uh, the internet's a pretty good way of doing it. Social media is a pretty good way of doing it. Uh, I think that's a big issue as it relates to this. But you know, frankly, although that's not the subject of our conversation, I think it's a real threat to our democracy, the fact that people are getting a lot of information that is misinformation. And I think a lot of people understand that that's a valuable tool to be used politically. Do you have a social media team at Merck that we sort do. of works proactively and then tries to address things that come up on the internet that pertain to you? We do. We try to make sure that when we see misinformation about healthcare or misinformation about one of our products out there that we make available to our consumers, to our patients, the accurate medical information. And if you look at data, a lot of people go to the web to get health information. Yeah. Uh, and that's really important to them. So it's really critical that they have scientifically valid, valid and, and balanced information. All right, let me ask you, shifting gears a little bit, to talk about um, your background, your career. You grew up a working class guy in Philadelphia, then went to Penn State, I believe, and yes. then got your law degree at Harvard. Go Nittany Lions. I, there I feel you go. that coming on. There you go, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, but are these opportunities, some people question whether these kind of opportunities, the social mobility is still there in this country. Is it under threat? I think it's totally under threat. So in my own particular case, I feel like I'm extremely lucky. I was born in the inner city of Philadelphia at a time when the social engineers in Philadelphia engaged in an experiment that they called school desegregation, which meant that my younger sister and I were put on a bus. We went 90 minutes across town to schools where we got a rigorous education. And when I look back on my life, I realized that that was a tremendous difference between the kids next door, because I actually went to schools that had rigorous academic standards. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have, we have it here in New York City, we have a big debate about the 16,000 slots in the elite public schools. But the fact of the matter is there are 1.1 million children being educated in the New York City public school system. And we have a very big challenge in our country around opportunity. And if children are not given access, starting with preschool, to the right kind of educational opportunities, then it's really not going to lead to that mobility. And frankly, that's the cornerstone of our democracy, is that upward mobility, that opportunity for each person to achieve their highest potential. Ken, I want to take you back two years ago to the summer of 2017. You were on one of the president's advisory councils. And then the um, incident in Charlottesville occurred. And you were critical of the president and decided to step down. You were the first CEO, I believe, to do that. That's right. Can you talk about the decision that led you, the, the thinking that led to that decision? So let me first start by saying, I don't think as the CEO of Merck, I have, any, have the right to tell people what they should think about politics. That's not my role. Uh, but in the aftermath of what happened in Charlottesville, I felt very strongly that some of the comments that were made, including comments by the president, were totally inconsistent with what we claim are core values as a country. And I would say that as a country, no matter what political persuasion we have, we all aspire to be a rational, tolerant, hopefully enlightened collection of free people. And we have certain values. That's what brings us together. We come from different countries, different places, but those values are the ones that we espouse. 
And I thought that the comments that were made were inconsistent with that, and I felt as a matter of conscience, I should step down. I had a responsibility to my company, and I called my board and asked them whether or not they would support me saying that I was doing it on behalf of my own conscience, but also as the CEO of Merck. And I'm very proud that unanimously the board said, we want you to speak to this issue, not just as an individual, but as the CEO of Merck. What was the reaction? We'll see what the reaction was here. What was the reaction like at Merck and amongst colleagues, people that you talked to? Were, were, were people against it? Did people criticize Well, the president it? reacted immediately. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But beyond that, I think most of our employees, no matter where they stood politically, supported what we did because we didn't see this as a political issue. We thought this was an issue that goes, again, to our basic values as a country. Um, I think in the business community, there were mixed views. I think, you know, among other CEOs, I think other CEOs might have had a different point of view about whether it was better to stay in the council and engage. I happen to feel that just as a personal matter of conscience, that I, I couldn't remain. Right, and, and it continues a little bit. I heard the president was blaming the pharma industry for the impeachment proceedings recently. I read that. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure what that was about. I'm not sure either. <laughs> um, so let me ask you a little... You know, Mark Twain had a quote in the 1800s. He said, and I'm not relating this to any particular person's comment, but back in the 1800s, Mark Twain said, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. Hmm. And there were no social media in the 1800s. So I think it's really important for us as citizens in this country to think deeply about the issues that we face. We have major issues in our country today. And I think the fact that we are often looking at tweets or social media comments, I would hope that we would try to come together as a nation and try to see where our commonality is. I want to ask you maybe a, a giant question, okay. which is, how do we fix our healthcare system? What's wrong with it and how do we fix it? Small okay. little thing. Okay, so let me, let me start by saying that whenever I'm asked a question like how do you fix healthcare or how do you fix public education, I just want to be clear. Anybody who gives you a facile answer is making it up. This is an extremely complicated issue. But what I will say about the solutions is I think any solution to the healthcare problems has to start with what's right for patients. Right? It's an extremely complex system that has grown up over a long period of time. And again, I think it's a cop out to say, here are the two or three things that we need to do. But I do think we could talk about the solutions around a value set. I think it's important to protect innovation. I think it's important to make sure that patients have access to the medicines and the interventions they need. And finally, can uh, the board of Merck, I think, um, just change the rules regarding age of the CEO so that allows you to stay on a little bit longer? How much longer are you going to stay? What's the process? What's going on with regard to succession, et cetera? Well, the great thing I would say about the company is that we have a deep bench of talent. Uh, not only for the CEO job, but for all the critical jobs inside the company. And so I feel very confident that we have a bench of, of really thoughtful, dedicated, value-oriented, smart people who will take this company to a much higher level than I ever could. Now, maybe a quick follow-up then, because maybe maybe may premature too, but what do you see your legacy at this company then? 
Well, I've been very fortunate that while I sat in the CEO chair at Merck, the scientists at Merck have done incredible things in areas like vaccines and oncology. So I won't take any credit for that because I don't think it's appropriate. But I would say that if, if I had a legacy, it would be that I think our company will continue to be dedicated to its core values of scientific excellence and making sure that medicines and vaccines are available to the people who need them. Ken Fraser, Chief Executive of Burke, thank you so much for coming to the Thank you so much. <laughs>